All right, we've got much to do today, and I'm excited to go through it. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, recapping last week, but we're going to go through that very quickly, and we're going to move on from there. So, if you all are ready, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. We are going to finish uh, this section today, and I do have some questions for you. And if you do want to stop me and ask a question or make a statement, raise your hand. Same rules, but we're going to move through some stuff. And our purpose today, last week we began with the question of why did God put the tree of uh, good and evil, of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why not leave it out? Why put it there in the first place? But we also looked at the reality that uh, when God did that and put the tree there, he said that was good. So we have a tendency now at this part of the story to look back and say, well, that was bad, and that was not good. If he had not done that, we could have avoided a lot of problems. And so we attempted to answer the question of why was the tree there, and it's more than just God was trying to trip us up. So uh, as we look through the first couple of chapters, I want to remind you chapter 1. Some scholars believe, we don't know, but they believe that chapter 1 was written at a different time than chapter 2, which explains why some, there's a little bit of difference in the orders that we see in both of those chapters, and yet both are consistent in the message, in the overall message. And as we've discussed for the book of Genesis, and um, I grew up in a religious background that said, uh, you have to believe this word for word, and that it, God created in six 24-hour periods, and I have no problem if that's what God did or if you believe that. I also have no problem if that is more, uh, God did create, it's important for me that God did do the creating, um, however, if he did it in six 24-hour periods or in six million years, that doesn't bother me. Now, it may bother others, and that's fine, but our purpose here is not for us to take the Bible and then make it a literal textbook for science and history. Our purpose is to understand what is the message God is trying to get to us. And I do believe, and let me be clear because I, I don't want to wander off into this area where the Bible is not trustworthy. I am not saying that. But I, I do believe we have to understand the whole of Scripture, and we have to recognize that those who wrote, wrote in a different time to a different people, in a different culture, with different expectations of the story than sometimes we want to have. It's, it's very easy to want to read Scripture literally, but there, that, that mindset is fraught with peril unless you are an expert at ancient Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. So as we come to it, it is important that we not just try to understand the best we can from the original text, but we able, are able to look at it through the whole of Scripture. And that's one of the things that we regularly do here. We regularly try to look at any given passage through the whole of Scripture because there should be consistency there. And I do find consistency, consistency throughout all of Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. There is a consistent message and one of those consistent messages that we are going to be following through the first 11 chapters of Genesis is this consistent series of God creating, then God uncreating, and then God recreating. So, so far in Genesis 1 through 3, God has created. We are just now beginning to talk about the uncreation, where we begin to dip into chaos and Today we're going to round that out, and then the next few weeks we're going to look at how that plays out in the lives of several people, several stories 
over these next few chapters. And then we're going to emerge back into that upward cycle of God recreates. This is God's grace and mercy and his desire to work in us and to help us and to redeem us. So we're going to see that over and over. And not only do we see it in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see that in all of the Old Testament. We see that through Jesus in the New Testament. And then scripture tells us we are still in a cycle of uncreation and recreation because Jesus will return. And when he returns, he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the path that we're going. If this is your first time in this series, then that is a very poor way to catch you up over a lot of things we've talked about. But I do want us just to recap very quickly what we talked about as far as what, one of the reasons I believe, and as I look through Scripture, why God put this tree here. We asked that question to you guys. You guys gave some really great answers last week. And they are all things that people struggle with. And let me just say, we are all kind of guessing based on the content that we have on exactly what the purpose was. Um, but I do believe that, that this one thing uh, we see throughout God's work in us, and that is the, how he expects us to function within the world and within life. Genesis 3 is a process of going from creation to chaos. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, plenty of trees, plenty of fruit. One was not better than the other, but only one was said, Do not eat of this tree. But there are plenty of other options that were really good. So it's a big smorgasbord in the Garden of Eden. You can have anything you want, just don't eat from that one. It's not like everything's bad. Everything's cafeteria food from when you were in elementary school, except for this one, you know, wonderful tree of steak or whatever your favorite food is. They're all good. You can eat anything you want. It's not like you're going to miss out by not eating on this tree. But there was a, this instruction. You can have... Anything from any, any of these, but just not this one. And everything he said we created was good, including this tree. We talked about that. And that demonstrating to Adam and Eve and to us today that at that moment, they had everything they needed. Everything they needed to live a full, a happy, uh, an exciting life, God had already given them. But I raise the question, is it possible that the tree was there because God was giving them something else that was necessary for a full life that we see as bad, but yet if we stop to think about how life works, is necessary for us to live full, whole, and complete lives. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded them, you can surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And I ask the question, what if Genesis 1-11 through is not just history, but is really a story of God's intention for us? Now that can stay absolutely true and inerrant. And yet we can still be flexible on some of the details. If we understand what God's intention was. We have to stay true to what God wants us to understand, because if we wander somewhere else, then we are somewhere we don't need to be. We have to stay true to what God's intention was. And I I offered this possibility. I believe there is much truth in this, so it's not just a possibility for me, that you cannot live a full and free life. Go ahead and 
Yep, there we go. Without, have, without the daily practice of restraint. And I want us to return to this idea that you cannot live a healthy life without a healthy tension within it. Now, we have all kinds of tensions in our life. We have all kinds of phrases that talk about this tension in different ways. For example, everyone knows too much of a good thing is what? Not a good thing. It's a bad thing. So how much of a good thing is still good? And when does that good thing become too much? So now it's become bad. There's a tension in that. We talked about finances last week. We talked about uh, substances like alcohol in which Scripture doesn't say you shouldn't drink any alcohol, but you should never allow yourself to be drunk with alcohol. And so there's a tension. Okay, all right, so I can, but I shouldn't get drunk. And then we also talked about the tension of, but if you struggle and you're not able to manage your consumption of alcohol, you shouldn't drink any of it. There's a tension in life. There's a tension in your work schedule. How much should I work? Well, you need to work so much or you can't pay your bills, right? But you work too much and now you're absolutely miserable because you're just burned out and you're working all the time. And so, you know, one person says, hey, they're a good employee. They're just nose to the grindstone getting it done. Someone else says, oh yeah, they're a workaholic. I mean, they're driving themselves to an early grave. There's a tension. Then how much work is too much work. You know, in relationships, if you're in a, mar- a marriage relationship, you're married to somebody today, you have learned to operate in a level of tension. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. All the men said amen. None of the women opened their mouths. That's interesting. That's interesting. All right. So there's a tension between two people. And we're actually going to cover this today in which God says that's going to happen. There is going to be tension between you. Now, there's tension in all kinds of area of our lives. There's a give and there's a take. And what if God built that tension in that you have to have it in order to be healthy and whole? We look at our physical bodies. Use it or lose it, right? You stop walking around. You stop working and exercising your body. You sit on the couch all day, every day. And what's going to happen to your body? It is not going to get, you know, healthier. So you, you have to put your body through stress in order for your body to be healthy. What if spiritually, this is the exact reason that the tree is in the garden of good and evil. The exercise of restraint have a supernatural result. And that's what we see throughout, not just this, But we actually see this, excuse me, in many places of the New Testament. God created everything to be good in the garden, and that goodness required the regular practice of restraint. We talked about the law last week. The law came in, but the law was insufficient to redeem us from the chaos that sin entered into the life and in our lives. We were not able to live the right way enough and to restrain ourselves enough to completely eliminate the consequences of sin. It was not possible. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. That prophetic vision is that word from God, that direction and purpose from God. When we are no longer drawn in that tension with God, 
then we cast off restraint, which is assumed a bad thing. We don't want to cast off restraint. Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus limited, restrained himself and his expression as he walked as a man in this world. He was both God and man, but he limited himself. We talked about service. I mean, the reality, if you choose to serve someone else, you are restraining yourself because our, our default way of viewing the world is that I want to serve me. I want to make sure I'm taken care of. I get what I want. My needs are taken care of. But when you choose to serve someone else, you're saying, I am going to withhold from me experiencing what I want to experience, and I'm instead going to make sure you can experience something else. I'm going to serve you. Jesus was our example for that. We talk about the first will be last, and the last will be first. Those who restrain themselves will be first. We look at Jesus talking about what does this look like within the kingdom. He says, uh, and, and our Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among, <coughs> excuse me, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, again, he's restraining himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We talk about debt, which is a very easy place where we can understand tension. I make so much, I want so much, right? Our wants and how much income we have, that is a tension that if we don't balance, we get in a bad way really quick. Scripture tells us, The debtor is slave to the lender. When we get out of balance and we don't restrain ourselves and live within our means, then we are enslaved to the one that is giving us that money to spend. It's not our money. Restraint is so crucial in the way in which we live our lives. Of the people that I know that are the healthiest, one of the things I know about them is that they have learned how to restrain themselves. They don't say everything that comes out of their mouth. Many times they don't even engage in unhealthy conversations. They just step back and no one really knows how they feel about it because they restrain themselves. Now, I know that Facebook is a wonderful place to change people's opinions and minds about things. I do know that. We've proven that over and over again with our own times that we just have to say something. But how many times have we done that and we've broken relationships? Restraint can be a healthy thing. This does not mean that we never engage. So even what I'm talking with you about today has its own tension, right? So you can be too restrained. Like, I'm just not going to do or say anything. I'm just going to stand back here and I'm just going to be a fly on the wall all the time. So that's not healthy either. Expecting others to be too restrained has been where the church has at times gotten in a lot of trouble and it has diverged from the gospel. 
So, in, in other words, one of the best tools for living a restrained life is the development of disciplines within your life. The church has been very bad about determining which disciplines you should follow. And yet, as we read through Scripture, you cannot grow in your faith or in likeness of Christ without disciplines in your life. You know, I posed a question with you last week. Why is it that we weren't born? Why, why are we born with the innate knowledge of how to nurse when we're born? We don't know how to do anything. We don't, you know, but we can breathe. Our hearts will beat. We, we know how to nurse. Why did God not just suck all his word in our minds that we would just know it from the beginning? Wouldn't that be good? And yet what he requires from us is discipline. That we have to spend time in his word. We have to remember his word. We have to practice his word. He expects us to use discipline in that regard. Discipline is crucial in the lives of people who live successful lives. And successful does not mean wealthy. If you're going to live a life that by the end of your life, you feel good about the life that you live, every single person is going to feel bad about some parts of their life. But if you're going to get to the end and say, you know what? It was a good life. You will not get there without discipline. At the same time, if we as a church take this mantra and say, Mark, I get it. I'm on board. It's about restraint. It's about discipline. You know what we should do? We should start being the most disciplined people in Chattanooga. Well, I, for one, I would not disagree with you. But two, if that means that we enact and enforce the discipline on you, then it will be all for nothing. And this is where the church gets in trouble. So this is one of the tensions that I often feel as a pastor. There are certain disciplines that Scripture talks about that you must have to be healthy as a follower of Jesus. And that is spending time in your Bible. But if I make you, if I shame you because you're not spending time reading God's word, what have we really gained? So there's a discipline and that's something that as a pastor, I need to tell you, you need to read the Bible. I mean, you need to know it. You need to read it all. You need to be able to have a systematic theology that fits from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And you can develop that over time. That is an absolute truth. But if I shame you into it and I create a discipline I enforce on you and you do it for any other reason, then I want to do this. Because of my relationship with Christ, then it will be all for nothing. It's the same with generosity. I can tell you you need to be generous. I can shame you if you're not generous and tell you this is a discipline that will get you out of debt. And it's going to improve your relationships with people and you're going to accomplish things for the kingdom. I can say all those things. But if you do it because I'm telling you to do it and you're not doing it because this is Christ working in me to be a a testimony to others, then it will be empty. It's like worship. It's like a clanging symbol. If our hearts are not really in it, then does it really matter? It's one of the tensions that we struggle with. And as pastors, one of the things that right now, I mean, tension is like the mantra of this age, is it not? We're tense everywhere about everything. I mean, is the dress blue or green. I mean, we can, we can create tension out of anything, right? Are you a, are you an iPhone or an Android user? My own iPhone, man, I am, I'm Android. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we, we create dividing lines everywhere. Are you for impeachment 
or against it? Don't answer. <laughs> Don't answer. Who are you voting for? Don't answer. Right? We create dividing lines. And shame is a terrible motivator. But the church can do shame better than anyone. Uh, all right? I haven't even gotten to bald heads yet, Herman. But I... Yeah. <laughs> And so this tension, what if it's not just our age? What if it's not just the culture? What if it's not just the political climate? What if this tension is God-inspired? And yet our exercise within that tension is where sin gets us so messed up. Is there not something somewhere in each of us that we want to get To a place of life where there is no tension. I want to make enough money. So I can retire and just do whatever I want. Is that not a motivator for most if not all of us? Or you think, oh, if I could just get a job where I have fewer responsibilities. And everyone just does their job and I don't have to make sure they do their job and then we can just all show up and all do what we love and it'll be great and there'll be no tension at all. Isn't that what we all want out of a career? And yet we get into the career and we find out it doesn't work. Isn't it crazy that we, before you get married, you're like, we are just so in love and you are after two. Don't let me lead you in the wrong place here. (laughs) We are... So in love, and we just agree on everything. I mean, we complete each other's sentence, and then like week two of marriage, you're like, what have I done? What have I, she or he doesn't get me, you know? It just, all of a sudden things change, it's tension. What, what I'm trying to submit to you in my understanding of why the tree is here is tension is there for a reason. It is God-inspired and ordained. How we manage that tension is a very good indicator of the kind of lives we're going to lead. And a lot of times for us in a capitalistic economy that is is just surrounded by marketing images 24-7, a lot of that tension for us becomes our wants versus our needs. It's just tension. You spend enough time thinking about it, and I feel confident you'll come to the same conclusion I have. It makes sense, but still, we don't want that tension. There was not tension in, that, in the regard that we felt in the garden. However, God had created the tension that said, you can have anything you want. It's all good, all good, but just not that one. Just not that one. And when he put that tension in there, it was the kind of thing... That many of you would say, why did they put the tree there? And some of you said this last week, and I 100% agree with you. Because we would have to choose to to be obedient or choose to follow God or choose to love God. I'm all 100% in that camp. I believe the reason the tension was there is God ultimately wanted us to choose Him. And God in His love, grace, and mercy had the opportunity to say, well, you, had, you could have chosen me, but you didn't. 
And he could have led us into chaos and left us there, but that's not where Genesis 1 through 11 takes us. And that's not the picture that we have of God. And I just want you to know, if you're here today and you're dealing with a level of chaos within your life, just know God wants to be there with you and he's not leading you there to leave you there. He's got a work to do within you. But we can learn something from what God placed in that garden. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, and then we're, we're going to run through some of this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the story. Some of you know it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... Like Kids just inherently know how to reason this way, right? They just inherently know this is how you get out of stuff, right? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We've already read it. Yes, he actually said it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she's saying, yes, God said you should not. The little serpent, let me get fast forward to one of the last things I'm going to tell you today. There's God is still planting trees of the garden of good and evil in your life, and there are still serpents whispering in your ear. It's still happening. And it often introduces with the phrase, did God actually say that you shouldn't take that? Did God actually say you shouldn't go on a date with someone who's married? I mean, is there a verse that says that? And whatever it is, whatever that tree is for you, there's a voice saying, is this really that big of a deal? I mean, is character that important? Because to be honest, in today's world, you can get ahead with less character than with more. The more character you have, the harder road you're going to have. Did God say that you... Because doesn't He just want you to be happy and just do well? And if you've got to cheat a little to do that, isn't God okay with that? Did He actually say, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. This is no big deal. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he did what men do. Sure. (laughs) Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I, I don't, so we're, you know what's coming next. God's going to make them some clothes out of, you know, animal skins. I, I've never tried to sew leaves. I imagine that's not a very easy thing to do. They don't tend to hold up very well. Um, but what we see here is a serpent saying, you know, you want it. Just take it. And it's really not that big a deal. I mean, nobody's watching. Is God here right now? Is it really that important? And, and some of the ways that we rationalize this in this world of, of situational ethics 
is just, well, you know, maybe it's not good for Adam. I'll let him make that choice, but I think this is probably good for me. And we do that all the time. We, we often begin to mess with Scripture by saying, well, I think this is a suggestion for those who want to follow it. But, you know, if you don't, I, I just think God just loves you and is happy that you want to have anything to do with him anyway. So I think you're fine to do whatever. I mean, that is the way that we often read Scripture. That's not the way God handles Scripture, but that's often the way we read it. And it all falls into this, this one temptation from the serpent, you will be just like God. And who doesn't want that? And where do you think Captain America comes from? Iron Man or the Hulk? I mean, the Hulk is the perfect hero for today. You can go and destroy anything and then you can transform and be fine. Big deal. I didn't do anything. And it is interesting how the last few Marvel movies began to wrestle with that very tension. Oh, Bruce, Bruce can do whatever he wants. Not Bruce uh, Cunningham. I mean, he can too, but he's, <laughs> he's pretty burly back there himself. But, uh, but the Hulk, he's the bad guy. We often want to separate ourselves here. We want to separate ourselves from that. And that's a very Greek way of thinking. We compartmentalize. And God says, that's not the way I operate. You are all authentically something. And you can pretend to be whatever you want. But what I'm looking for are people that are authentically trying to follow me. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when, we, when someone begins talking about your destiny, you have one destiny. Your destiny is not to be successful. Your destiny is not to be wealthy. Your destiny is not to start a, a billion-dollar business. Your destiny is to conform to the image of Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. You are to conform to the image of Christ. Now, the beauty of God and the way God creates and His diversity and creativity is that we can be conforming to the image of God and still look different from each other and still be conforming to that image. That's one of the beautiful parts of diversity uh, of God being a creative God. We struggle with that. If we feel like we've got an an angle on something, I think I got it. I know what I'm supposed to do now as a follower of Jesus. What we want to do is is we do want to put that on everybody else. And yet this is where Paul talks about the body being made of many different parts, many different gifts, many different perspectives, many different personalities. And at times, we will have conflict and tension between us even when we both are authentically seeking to live in the image of Christ. It's really amazing how dynamic this life is with God, and yet He has built tension into all of it. How will we manage it? How will we understand it? As we look at, at uh, Eve and then Adam, what we often struggle with is what they struggle with, and that is that unrestrained appetites actually lead to tyranny, not more freedom. But unrestrained appetites are what we personally want to go after in our lives. Okay? Choose any addictive behavior. That's an unrestrained appetite. And we, you know, those of us who are addicted to electronics always go to alcohol or drugs or sex or something like that. And yet we're addicted to whole other things. Right? Unrestrained appetite is what we want. That's kind of the, the uh, banner call uh, of my generation and those coming after me is you just get to have whatever you want. I mean, you should have whatever you want. No, 
we shouldn't. <laughs> you know, if you get whatever you want, in all likelihood, that means I'm not getting something I want, right? Unrestrained appetites lead to tyranny within our lives. And it is easy to again to see in finances. You know, I, when I was in college, I didn't get much mail. I mean, you still got mail back in those days, you younger people. I mean, you still got stuff other than bills and junk mail. I, I got credit card applications that I was already pre-approved for. Anybody get those in college? Like every day I'd go to my, my college post office box and it would be stacked full of everyone telling me I, I qualify for a new credit card. Well, I'm in college. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Because I know how much money I got, and you're going to give me $5,000 to go spend on something else? You know, let's go get a PlayStation. That is awesome. Let's go get a new TV. That is fantastic. And so we can then take that credit card, and we can just fill whatever appetite we have. We can travel. We can buy stuff. We can eat. We can do whatever and spend however much money we have until we get that credit card bill, right? And that unrestrained appetite now has a consequence. Now I can't do anything because I've got to pay this bill. You know, and most financial statisticians tell us the majority of every American in the United States of America is struggling under a load of credit card debt. Now, sometimes they're absolutely necessary. You know, some health concern comes up and you can't afford to pay for the treatments. Huh? You know, what are you going to do? Just say, you know, I'm going to be fiscally responsible. You know, I, it's a hard decision to make then. But yet you can become a slave very quickly. Unrestrained appetites lead to tyranny. They don't lead to freedom. And this is why one of the reasons that the church is at such odds with the culture around us is because the culture wants us to say, God loves you. God died for you. God wants you to have everything you want. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's opposite of the gospel. And so when we say, you need to restrain yourself. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean I got to restrain myself? You restrain yourself. You know, I... We have such good arguments. But that is the argument that we make most of the time. And the only person that can stand up and say this is good is the person who was unrestrained and experienced tyranny. Began to practice restraint and experienced freedom. And then they can stand and say, Okay, but I know what you're going through right now. You think you're free, but you're not. Let me show you what real freedom is. I think restraint is just so crucial. And certainly, that restraint is meant to be a message of, God, I choose you. Because that is the motive for our restraint. We can choose to restrain ourselves simply on the fact of, I'm going to live a disciplined life, so I'm going to monitor my spending. I'm going to monitor my diet. I'm going to monitor my time where I spend places. And so I get to the end of my life, and I am going to have been in complete control of everything in my life, and I'm going to feel good about life. You can do that and get to the end and realize that even discipline by itself is not enough. Only when that discipline is in the process of choosing God consistently. Old, I stand at the door and knock. 
If you'll open the door, I'll come in. So I, I, I don't want to do one of two things. I don't want to divorce the restraint from the choosing of God. They are together, one and the same. But at the same time, I, I don't want to talk about restraint only in the sense of some emotional, you know, choice that we make. Oh, I'm choosing God. Are we? Do our lives demonstrate that? Do our actions demonstrate that? Unrestrained appetites lead to tyranny, not to freedom. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, will we be fully satisfied with the things God has given us? For them, the trees, everything you want to eat in the trees, you can have it all. Will we be satisfied with the things God has given us? Or must we have all of our appetites filled? Are we only satisfied with God when God satisfies all our appetites? And based on what we see here in the garden, God has never, that has never been his goal, and he is never going to actively choose to satisfy all your appetites. Part of following him is resisting some of those appetites. So let's look at the fall into chaos. Now we're, we're, now we're fallen. Now we're, we're going downhill. We're, we've gone from creation, everything's good, we're moving to, towards <clears throat> uncreation. Verse 8 of chapter 3 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, you know, as if, what? What? God's here. Like, he, if they had a correct theology, they would have known God had already, already knew all of this. Sometimes um, in our house, we, ha- we don't have a lot of insulation in our house. And uh, so when Malia gets out of her bed, she's not in here. I can talk about her, Right. So y'all don't go tell her I said this, but she's six, those of you who don't know us. When she gets out of her bed, I can hear every step she makes, but she doesn't know that. And I don't want her to know that. And so we constantly have a problem of she wants her door to be open. It has everything to do with the first two years of her life of abandonment. And she's adopted, by the way. We didn't abandon her, but she's adopted. (laughs) It's not like at year two, we decided to be good parents. That's not how that worked. However... So those of you who don't know us, but, but part of that abandonment is to be sequestered behind a closed door creates all kinds of anxiety for her that she has to deal with. And so we are, we are increasingly trying to get the door closed because she has to go to bed for everybody else and everybody else keeps her awake. And so I'll be downstairs in my room, right under her room. And I'll hear a boom, and I know she's up, she's up. And then I can hear, her. I get up. She can hear me down there. I'm walking towards the stairs. Boop, 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 bump, back up in the bed. I can hear that. It's like she thinks, oh, oh, no, dad's coming. I, he can't know that I'm out of my bed. I already know. I can hear you. I know you're out of your bed. Same thing with Adam and Eve. Oh, God's here. You know, I, she, he's here. Like, oh, oh, hide. That's not an effective strategy. I'm just going to tell you, no matter how you try to hide from God, it is not effective. You won't be able to pull it off. It's, you know, God is there. We, in our mind, play mind tricks that separates us from God. He knows. Like, He knows. It's not like we're going to get up to heaven and God's going to say, listen, so I looked for you for a couple of years and I couldn't find you anywhere, but I'm, saying, I'm just going to assume good job. You know, I don't think that's how that's going to work. I don't think that's how God works. He knows What's going on? Not only just our actions, but our innermost thoughts. I mean, God knows everything about us. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Again, kind of funny, God, you know, but where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to, you know, guys, come on, listen. (laughs) So one of the key principles of restraint is you take responsibility for your own actions, right? That's one of the key principles of restraint and discipline is just fess up, right? (laughs) Okay. Ignore that. (laughs) If you didn't hear that, he said he was distracted. That's what he said. He said he was distracted. Um, (laughs) We're off. We're getting off track real quick. All right. Back on track, people. (laughs) And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And now all you women who are saying, yeah, give it to the men. I mean, they don't take responsibility for nothing. I do everything at the house. I do all the laundry. I do all the cooking. I tell him to get up and go to work. I don't do anything. So what did Eve do? She, the, the bastion of character, um, better than Adam. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right? This is what we do. This is what we do. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't mean it me. It was not my fault. You know, that is our standard response. And that's why I'm, sometimes my children get frustrated with me because I, can't, I, hate that, I hate that defense. It's not my fault. Well, it may not have been your fault, but what can we do not to get in this situation next time? Taking responsibility is the, is the most basic core fundamental of restraint. As long as you put that in someone else's hands, then you are not going to find that freedom, that restraint, the kind that God is suggesting offers us. So what do we find? Three things happen right here, all in this very short period. Sin has entered in. They have fallen. God has not yet pronounced what is about to happen, but yet the consequences are already beginning. They have awakened to this reality, and they realize we have messed up. They have come to a place of no going back. These three things happen. They are the same three things we struggle with today. Number one, they were afraid. Probably couldn't understand what that was. Because up until this point, they haven't been afraid. Fear is a result of sin. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of fear you get on a roller coaster and you're scared to death you're going to die. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just saying in general... Fear has been birthed out of the introduction of sin into the world. Interestingly, Scripture says the antidote to fear is what? Not faith. Love. Perfect love casts out fear. That's a good answer, though. That's close. It is close. (laughs) Second thing that we see is they hid themselves. They were ashamed. I told you a few weeks ago, there are two ways to motivate people. Two primary ways. One is love. And one is shame. Now, one is a lot easier to motivate with than the other. Shame is way easier to motivate with 
Because when sin entered into the world, it gave us a base sense of shame. Now, I don't know what you feel shame over. If you feel no shame over anything, well, I think either one, you're not being honest with me or yourself. Because everybody struggles with shame in some place. Some of us struggle with it in a debilitating way that we allow shame to be our taskmaster. It runs our lives. It ran there, and instead of running to God, they ran away from God out of shame. And when you're feeling shame, no matter what the, the cause root of it, no matter what's pushing that shame within your life, you need to know that every moment of shame that you feel is a result of our struggle with sin. It is not a result of God being angry with you. The tension has gotten out of balance. And <clears throat> excuse me, shame has entered into our story. And the enemy brought it in and will use it every day that you let him. This is one of the great things that Christ does for us on the cross. Is he not only breaks that yoke of sin, he removes that shame. Now, if you've got a friend, a well-meaning Christian friend, who likes to bring up all of your past sins, they do not understand what Jesus has done. That shame is gone. And yet it still creeps in because the serpent is still whispering in our ears. The third thing that we see here, and this is the way we respond to most things, they blamed others for their own choices. Eve made a choice. Adam made a choice. They each blamed somebody else for their choice. This is where we get the political system of the United States of America. Amen? I mean, we blame everybody for everything. But we do it in our own lives. There are people just like we are. And one of the things that we have to, if you want to be an authentic person, I like to tell people that we as a church, we are really no better than you think we are. Like, if you come in here and you're like, they can't be like this. Yeah, this is how we are. I mean, this is just it. You know, we're not any better. But we're probably not any worse either. And that's really the way I try to live my life. I'm not the best at anything. And I'm okay with that. It took me a while to come to grips with this. I'll be honest. But I came to grips with it. And I'm okay with it. I'm not the best. What you see with me is generally what you get. But see, what the serpent wants to say within your life is, don't let them see who you are. Pretend like you're better. Blame someone else for why you are the way you are. Don't deal with it. Don't overcome it. Just hide it. Pretend. Put a big face on. Tell everybody. Take credit for as much stuff as you can take credit for. And that's what, the, that's what the serpent says in your ear. That does not lead to freedom. The most basic component of health is taking personal responsibility for our own lives. And no one else. I mean, there are people I love dearly that I would love to them just to give me the reins of their life and let me, you know, take over for a while. But that never works. 
It never works. Sometimes people actually come and ask that we do that for them, but it doesn't work because I can't, I can't walk with you everywhere you go. I, can't, I don't know what's going on in your head unless you tell me. Taking your personal responsibility is the most very basic component. So we get to the consequences of the fall. This is what we're going to wrap up with today. The consequences of the fall. I had a question for you. We're running out of time. We may have, we may have some time for some responses, but read this with me. You don't have to read it, but I mean, follow along. Genesis three fourteen and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent. Now, here's where he kind of comes in and lowers the boom. God's, the question I was going to ask you, and I'll kind of flash forward, was which parts of the punishment were curses? In other words, that God caused to happen. And which part of the punishment were just natural consequences of sin? So we, we sometimes read this like God made all these things happen now. So like, this is going to happen. I'm going to make this happen. And now this is going to happen. And you're not getting away either. I mean, but some of it, some of these are just as a result of the choice that you've made is fundamentally changing, you know, how you function. And now these things are going to happen because now you function differently than I intended for you to. So the question I was going to ask you, and you can look through as we read through this, is so which of these are God saying, I'm making this happen, and which of them are, these are just the natural consequences that now sin has entered into this creation. <clears throat> the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed, it's a good key word, are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, you, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I will surely, that's a good key word. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten to the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, another key word, is the ground because of you and pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was a mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So which, what do you hear in there? Are God saying, I'm going to now make this happen as a result or punishment for this action? Throw some out. Snakes cursed. Snake was cursed. So was the land was cursed. What else? Childbirth is now going to hurt like a dog or, you know, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. All right. That was probably not. A, I wasn't trying to make a, you know, thing. It's just going to hurt really bad is what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that I think you can make an easy, um, an easy connection there. Um, I don't, I don't think it's typically um, interpreted in that way. But I think, I think within the context that you can easily make that connection, and uh, could could go there. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. Yeah, I mentioned to you last week. Sometimes we read this and. We try to understand the patriarchs in the Old Testament through this lens. That this conflict between men and women is something that God made happen. Now God's going to make us upset with each other. And we know even today, this, this result of sin is alive and well in our world today. The conflict between men and women, not just between husbands and wives but between men and women. I think we're making strides, but we're still struggling with it overall. And it is not my understanding that he is commanding or cursing them with this, but this is a natural response of sin. And this is, when I jokingly said this earlier, we, we just got along, we, we agreed on everything before we got married, then we got married, and then all of a sudden we started disagreeing on stuff. It was the craziest thing ever. Uh, that's people. That's also a result of sin. It is not that God has chosen to play with our families and just say, oh, I'm just going to make things rough for you now. I'm going to take that away from your families. No, this is a result of sin. It is not that God was ordaining men to lord over women which there are some who read this passage in that way. Men are, but God ordained to lord over women. And that has been expressed through the church in so many unhealthy ways for so many generations. That is not what he is saying that he wants. God is not saying now that you've done this. And the way we we kind of um, come to this conclusion is, well, Eve is the one who ate the fruit. You know, that's what guys say, right? Well, you did too. You know, men did too. And if you think, well, gosh, if Adam and Eve hadn't done it, I mean, if I were there, I wouldn't have eaten it. Yes, you would have. Yes, you would have. I would have too. We all would have. But God's intention is not for men to lord over women. Now, God does encourage roles within relationships. But they're generally not the ones that we tend to enact on people. God intends for us to be together, humanity. The, e, even the name Adam is synonymous with humanity. So he's talking about this in the context of all of humanity, intended for us to be equal, but the result of sin will create unhealthy tension. So it is not us following God's plan. Oh, well, you know what? We would have been equal, and you would have gotten an equal say in stuff. If we hadn't sinned, if you hadn't eaten from the, you know, if women hadn't eaten from the tree, we would have been equal. But since you did, men get to be in charge. This has never been God's plan. This is not borne out anywhere 
and the whole message of Scripture anywhere. Even when we talk about submission within the home, we always fail to read the preceding verse that says women will submit to their husbands. Because we, we read that all the time. Women will submit to their husbands. You know what the verse before that says? It's, we will submit to one another. We will submit to one another. Now, the way that we operate within this tension, God has said, well, you, you each have a, pl- a, a place to play. And what we have found, what I have found, is sometimes Deidre is just better at stuff than what other husbands do in the family. And sometimes I'm better at stuff at what sometimes wives do in the family. I mean, not much. I'll tell you that. <laughs> not much. But we, ha- we find that place where we both best fit each other. And that we can share leadership. And yet Deidre has this wonderful way about her of caring about things a little less than me. Or at least she says she does. And that she does allow me to lead in the moments where we are, we disagree. And some of you may say, well, that is just exactly what the church has always done. Except, this goes back to that tension. So I can tell you, you should read scripture. But if you don't want to read scripture, it doesn't matter. I can tell you that Deidre allows me to lead. But that does not mean that of utmost importance to me leading is finding out what she most wants and what she believes is best. So this this mindset of men over women. This was born in the Garden of Eden. Not because God said... All right, Eve, you screwed up. All women will now be subjected to whatever men want to do. That is, that is not what a follower, how a follower of Christ reads that. These are the consequences of sin that we endeavor to reverse. We endeavor to reverse that. Again, different. you may have a different reading of that as I read through this and I look through the whole message of Scripture. That is what I see. And I bring that out because it is important. You know, for example, curse is the ground. Because of you, in pain, you shall eat of it. So he, he's not saying, I'm making you have pain, but the cur- ground's curse. You're going to have to work really hard now. And it's going to be painful. You know, and, and you're going to do that. I mean, there's going to be thorns and thistles that come out. I mean, weeds. I'm good. I can grow a weed. But growing something that you want to eat, that's, I'm not good at that, right? They're just going to naturally grow. Sometimes our yard, sometimes my yard, I just... If it weren't for the weeds, I wouldn't have any grass. I'm just not a green thumb. But he's not saying, I'm going to make you have pain, but the result of the ground being cursed is going to bring you pain. That's just the natural consequence of sin. It's good when we read through these things to recognize, well, then what are some of the natural consequences? Because that gives us an idea of where we can focus some of our attention to repair And it doesn't just mean that God has ordained it's going to be this way now. So that's a good thing to look through that. We, of course, cannot leave this idea of creation, uncreation, and recreation without looking at verse 21, in which God does not say, I'm done with you. I told you not to do it. You did it. I'm done with you. But what does he do? And in grace and mercy and love, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Even in the initial 
dive into chaos. There is a loving, graceful, merciful, providing God with them. If you are in the midst of sin in your life, I don't know what it is. And it just, it has you by the horns. Just know God is not distancing himself from you. God is still there in the midst of our chaos. That is his love and grace and mercy. And if God is there, should we, his people, not be with others in the midst of their chaos too? Rather than just step back. What do I have anything to do with that? This is the love, grace, mercy, and compassion of God. We're going to skip Genesis three twenty-two through 24. Jake, skip that passage. Go to those next notes. I'm going to go through these quickly. That next passage of Scripture is basically, you're now ejected from the garden, and God made sure we could not return to eat of the tree of, of uh, eternal life. These are the things I would leave you for this passage. And if you leave here thinking that I have now um, definitively answered all your questions about this passage, oh, we have not even really scratched the surface. I would encourage you to go and spend some time digesting this and working through it. But at this stage of Genesis 1 through 11, this is what I want you to take away. And then we're going to begin to see how this plays out in these next few stories. Um, How humanity then begins to struggle with these and how it affects. It's amazing. In those stories, the things that they struggle with, we still struggle with today. There's much we can learn from these stories. When all that God has given us isn't enough, chaos enters our life. That is that unrestrained appetite. I've already said this to you. And if we read this passage saying, whew, I'm glad we weren't there when that happened. You have the same test every day. Same one every day. God is still planting these trees in your garden. He's still putting them there and saying, restrain yourself. Restrain yourself. Are we in those moments satisfied in him? Or is that thing so enticing that we will bypass God to get it? There's still trees being planted. What is the tree in your life? If you want to experience some significant breakthrough in your life, spend some time and maybe go to people you trust and know you and just say, so what trees do you think I have in my garden? I mean, that you may have to explain a little bit what you mean, but... <laughs> Ask them, give, you, give me feedback. Like, where do you see me struggling in this area? You, go to people you trust and people that demonstrate a level of maturity. But those trees are still there. What are, what are we bypassing God for? Our appetite is so great for this thing that I just, you go over here for a while. I, I need this. As I've also said, there is still a serpent whispering in your ear, Asking you to question God. He doesn't really want what's best for you. He doesn't really mean what he says. It's not really that bad. 
And then this is just, this is just a basic life skill that, that I have, I will, I say I've learned in the sense that I know it's a basic life skill. I'm still working on actually living it out, but I do know it's a basic life skill that if you want to exercise restraint, discipline is the path. And I just, I know I'm going a little over here. I just, I don't want you to walk out of here mishearing what I'm saying. I myself have experienced unnecessary disciplines being placed on me, both as a Christian and as a pastor. The church is good at this. I remember when a person who had been in our, not this church, another church, had been in there for, I mean, generations. Their family had been there for generations, and I stopped wearing a coat and tie on Sunday mornings. They told me they were going to leave the church if I didn't start wearing a coat and tie. That is a crazy discipline that has no bearing in the eyes of God. So the church is terrible about manufacturing disciplines. I am not suggesting that we need to do that. I am not suggesting that we now need to get a team together and we need to come up with 150 disciplines that we're going to make sure everybody does in our church. That is a pathway that the serpent wants us to take. I'm telling you as an individual, and this is how the church is supposed to work. I'm telling you as an individual, you have to choose discipline. You have to choose to spend time with God. You have to choose to spend time in God's word. You have to choose to push back against the temptation to sin. But you have to choose it. And the church is here to help. And we can shame you. And we can shame in a number of ways. We can shame with a look. I knew it. I knew it about you. I knew it. Yep, I see it. Yep, you. There's no hope for you. Man, we're good at that. Shame never works. Not in bringing us to where God wants us to go. But I'm telling you, if you are living a life where you are not actively expressing or you're living out disciplines within your life, you are not living the life God wants for you. And maybe your next step is, so what disciplines do I need? For me, it always comes back to God's Word. If you need a starting point, it's always, always, always God's Word because that lays out all the rest of the story. Spend time at God's Word. God's Word without regular communion with God, has limited effect. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time with God. It's always a challenge that we don't worship or idolize the Bible over Christ. But they do go hand in hand. So I would encourage you to start there. All right? Okay. So I'm going to stand down here after. And I know you're tired, and it's warm in here, and it's hard to stay awake in an environment like this. We, we'll turn the air conditioning on next week, and because uh, that'll feel good for me. But no, we won't do that. But I'm going to stand down here after the service. If you'd like to talk, I'll be here to talk. If you have a question, or you want to push back, or you have something else going on altogether, you want somebody to pray with you, or you want to have something, uh, you want to, you know, increase your involvement here at our church, whatever. I'm going to stay after today. And I'll just be down here, and I'm open to talk if you would like to. 
All right? Join us next week. We're, we're leaving this. We're, we're taking this mindset with us, but we're leaving this topic, and we're moving on um, to chapter 4 next week. So be reading chapter 4 for next week, okay? Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is trustworthy. God, I am just so thankful that in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, you didn't leave them. I'm I'm thankful you were there with them, that you were still taking care of them. I thank you that you love us even when we fail miserably. And I pray that you would forgive us if we ever communicate anything other than that to people outside of these walls or inside these walls. Move in us. Teach us. Father, help us to develop the disciplines that lead to life. Show us what they are and help us to follow through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.